uh, to be here at this time with you all and to share this practice which becomes more precious and more meaningful um, as we are faced with such challenging times. And also for me and many of you here as we age, time gets more precious. I remember when I first, one of the first times I met Ajahn Chah, I was actually very young, he came to the UK and um, as a result of an invitation from the English Sangha Trust, which had been established in 1956 to bring Buddhist monastics to the UK. So that was where he first, uh, the first monastery of Ajahn Chah from the forest school was uh, founded in the West, and, um, which happened to be just down the road from where I was living, which is quite convenient. And so I stumbled into all of that. Um, but Ajahn Chah said to me, well, you're young. Um, you should practice because you'll need it when you get old. <laughs> you need it when you're young too. <clears> Titnat <throat> Han said, uh, we are here to awaken from the illusion of our separateness. Um, this is our curriculum. Um, to understand that we are actually deeply interwoven and interconnected with all beings, with all plants, with all that manifests uh, within this mysterious realm of reality, comes into form with the cosmos, with the stars, the planets, the earth, the oceans, the mountains, the rivers, the grasses, the insects. And this is all part of our body. Um, but we don't really realize that or embody that or understand that or know that because we're very separated out. Um, and uh, at this time, that separative consciousness is being exacerbated and increased and is shattering um, through the increase of division and hatred uh, as a force that's in a way um, spreading across this country but in many places. And we're very aware of that and we're sit sitting in the crux of that dynamic and its impact and that uh, force of division depends on the um, victimization of others that uh, tend to be more vulnerable and become the receptacles of the projection of the separative mind that can't withstand its own shadow, its own pain, and its own brokenness. Now, Carl Jung had a lot to say about this as he contemplated this very deeply and particularly around what happened in the last century across Europe, as we know the story um, in Germany and what arose there. Um, and in response to that, he said, in the unconscious of every individual, there are instinctive primitive propensities charged with considerable tension. When they are helped in one way or another to break through into consciousness, 
and wise discernment has no opportunity to intercept them and transmute them into higher forms, they sweep everything before them like a torrent and turn men into creatures for whom the, the word beast is too good a name. They can be called only devils. To evoke such phenomena in the masses, all that is needed is a few possessed persons or only one, a single one of these complex-ridden individuals who, acts, who sets themselves up as a megaphone, who revels in demagoguery, and who is enough to precipitate a catastrophe. This is a, an old and a current story, um, and we're you know, immersed um, into this very deep um, journey and awakening that's not just not a, an escape into the uh, configurations and idealizations of light, as Jung would also say, but actually bringing the light to reveal what's in the shadow. This is the path of awakening. He talked about the danger uh, of an archetypal power, the archetypal power of the shadow that hasn't been discerned and integrated and understood and healed to overwhelm civilization um, and analyzed how these ne negative projections can be like... Uh, uh, viruses that contaminate a nation and shift them into a psychosis where sanity um, diminishes and what becomes the norm, it becomes um, what we're witnessing now. Yeah. So, so one of the most important realizations of his work um, was that uh, to understand how this projective mind works and particularly when we feel threatened and how if we don't have the opportunity or if we lose the possibility of insight uh, and the ability to deal with the source of that energy as it, as it emerges from this mind, our minds, and contaminates our mind, if we don't understand this projective mechanism um, then that is a very dangerous situation. So the shadow, the journey into shadow is another way perhaps of talking about the journey into dukkha or suffering. And this is something we really try and move away from. Our instinct is to, to feel something is going so wrong when we feel and experience what we might call shadow or the, the parts of ourself that we don't like to Except as uh, as as ours that have emerged, our, our resentments and our hates and our irritation and our self-loathing and um, the way that the separative consciousness works, not only to separate us out from the others around us and in the world around us and how that operates, but also even separates us out from our own processes and our own feelings and our own body and how painful that is. So in many ways, we have this moment that we're in. This is, um, come, came into our groups today in terms of the contemplation of the internal in mindfulness. We contemplate the internal and the external and how they reflect each other and how there's an interplay of both and how what is external informs and shapes the internal and vice versa. 
So this mind and the projections of mind and the world that we experience are in a, a very profound interplay and shape each other. And how that this is uh, the, you know, the acknowledgement of what an enormously unprecedented time we're in, which feels like uh, an enormous attention between a consciousness that is trying to evolve and give birth fully to uh, the new world that is trying to be born, one that is more collaborative, that is a lessening of... Uh, the way that we boundary ourselves from each other on this planet as humans and identify in tribal ways, um, the way that is more a green economy, more sustainable, more respectful and profoundly um, working um, sustainably and respectfully with the earth and its creatures and its animals and its ecosystems. The evolving movement of that and, and the leaps of, of, of technology and innovation and, and awareness um, and the challenge to old systems that have kept us oppressed, how that is a, a tremendous movement that's happening at, at speed and then up, up against that and pushing against that is a devolving into what has gone before, the stories that we know before, that we've witnessed into this deep, divisive, separative consciousness and desire to dominate and control uh, for the sake of power itself, for the fear of what uh, the loss of that power may entail. So we're at a sort of this crux and this crossroads and while we see it unfolding externally, it's also impacting us internally because we are part of the, we are, you know, as Urquhart Tolle uh, said that, um, that you know, we we see ourselves as as our personhood, you know, and our personal journey. He didn't say this. I'm just saying this right now. I'll get to what he said. <laughs> uh, I think he. Uh, but we are we are unique people. You know, um, we have unique karma, unique stories, unique um, nationhoods and uh, affinities and um, ancestries. Um, that we honor and that we work with. And then we see ourselves as collectives and within groups and then within nations and so on. So we have these different ways that we see ourselves and that we identify. But what he said is that actually we're a focal point of awareness where the universe is become, becoming conscious of itself. So, you know, in this, when we experience ourselves as that, as, a, as a, a focal point of awareness, where the universe is awakening to itself through this system, then we are in touch with this enormous crucible um, of this evolutionary uh, process, this, this great um, pressure of that. And we feel that within ourselves and we see it operating on the planet, and that's that is the the journey um, of awakening through the shadow, through dukkha, through this pressure, by allowing that to operate and accepting it, and not feeling that when we experience that, or in, uh, that we have to somehow um, judge that as unspiritual, or feeling that when we are overwhelmed by that process, that something is going wrong and that we are failing. 
you know, that actually something is going right when we feel this enormous uh, tension and stress and challenge of our times. Because the outcome of, of this evolutionary process, if we don't make the shifts that we need to make, and the time is disappearing, as we found out very recently, I mean, when, um, you know, I nearly felt like fainting, really, when the, the recent reports that have come out and that have taking more and more layers off our eyes of the denials that we've been in, the bargaining that we're in. We have time, we pass it down on, and now we suddenly know there's no time or very, very little a blink left um, to make this huge, these huge transitions. And it's something we're all collectively involved in because the stakes are so very high. If we don't really do that, then we are facing you know, the unthinkable of a collapse of our ecosystems and all that are sustained by that. And, um, you know, the chaos. We're already seeing the edges of that happening. We saw that through the great migrations that came from the destabilization of in Africa and the Middle East and uh, into Asia, across into Greece and Europe. And we're seeing it now from uh, the southern um, uh, America, South, uh, South America. Um, so, you know, there's a, there are a lot, um, a lot, a lot to be with, a lot to be with. And yet no, none of this is outside of our practice. All of this is, um, is within the capacity for us to, to be with. Because when it comes down to it, the practice is only ever this much in this moment. If we think about these, and we must contemplate these larger contexts that we're in, you know, to contemplate wisely and together, so we're not just alone, failing, flailing around. But when we, you know, when we actually come out of the reactivity, which is an enormous reactivity to to the dynamic that's unfolding that we can all experience and have experienced, I feel that. But when we come down to this moment where the practice takes us, we, it is just this moment. And how are we? do we show up for that? How do we show up for that? And that is our main task. It's really just showing up for what's here. I remember one of the elders of the Khoisan, so-called Bushmen in Southern Africa, uh, talking about um, you know, what, is our, what is our purpose here from their perspective? Um, and the purpose was to show up, you know, to be here uh, as fully as we can, not to show up with a strategy necessarily or an agenda, but just to be here in the fullness of our presence, to show up and to celebrate. <laughs> we often forget to do that. We, we show up with a lot of intensity and, and worry and fear, which is also fine, but, you know, we can also celebrate the preciousness uh, you know, of of this moment and our ability to be here in this safe space, in this stable space for now. So it's just this much that we that we are with. And so Ajahn Chah said, actually, all of this practice that we've done and that we're doing is preparation for when the big things hit, and when the passions hit, when you know the Armageddon is coming down the tube. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which actually means revelation. To it's uh, stripping away the illusions. We're st- we're in the process of a stripping away of the illusions that we've been in, the denials, the bargaining, 
you know, and uh, having to really grow up in ways that we never thought we would have to. So it's, uh, he also would say, uh, when you can't go forward and you can't go back and you can't go up and you can't go down and you can't move anymore, that's also when practice really begins. You know, when you have to face what is. And that was certainly for me when I first was in my monastic training and I had a very idealized notion of what that would be and it wasn't anything like I thought it would be. It wasn't the pink cloud that I was hoping to float off into nirvana and sit in my kuti above the the world for, you know, and sort of go out in some sort of cosmic bliss. It was a real spiritual workout, work camp, um, you know, that evoked a tremendous amount of um, hindrances, you know, rage and anger and upset and irritation and, you know, overwhelm and, you know, and pretty early on when I was uh, faced with a situation where I felt, um, you know, I was either going to murder all my fellow nuns or burn down the monastery or something because <laughs> I couldn't stand anyone anymore and I couldn't stand anything about what I was immersed in. I, uh, I, something of the teaching came through in that moment, you know, so mindfulness, <laughs> be mindful. Um, but, you know, the, the enormity of what I was experiencing, just to turn to that and receive that experience in a moment of mindful acceptance and to breathe there and to this is my shadow you know that I had only known about either I project it in in aversion and and wore myself off into a frozen isolation or I repress it and that wasn't working I'd obviously spend a lot of time repressing it or I disassociate and that wasn't working because the energy was so fierce and it wouldn't go away, and I couldn't distract myself in a monastery like a retreat. There's not many opportunities for that. After you've read all the labels and sussed everyone out and <laughs> checked it all out and done the trails, you know, it's, God, here I am again, you know. <laughs> so, you know, so I just sort of sat with it, and it, I think it was a really profound moment for me because I sat with this an, an enormous emergence of rage and pain And as I sat with it and just the mindful welcoming and holding that in awareness, it started to melt down. It melted my heart. I could feel it alchemically, energetically, melding through the heart center and softening and opening to the place in the end where I could feel a sense of love. And, uh, you know, not just because I was making up and practicing, you know, may they be well, May they be well, I was fuming, but, but genuinely, genuinely realized that we were here together and I loved everyone, even though I didn't really like them. <laughs> <laughs> so we're waking here as a, as a collective um, because we're, you know, in this great time of uncovering as so much is coming into the light of our awareness at speed, so much downloading, um, and for, for sure, within that, we have to retreat sometimes, to resource, to recoup, to find that ground, um, to understand how and to look at how this separative consciousness has operated both personally, collectively, and systemically, how profound it is and how wedded into it that we are, how all of our thoughts and our emotions and the way that we reference everything around our individuality, how that's an ongoing 
uh, drama that we perpetuate through our thinking and concepts and through our commitment, as Aaron was saying, the loyalty to that, that stone that we're rolling up and down the hill. You know, more rolling it up. And then also, you know, systemically, how this, this is a very, these systems that have been in place for a long time that have generated historic separations and oppressions that are now coming up for review for us to look much more deeply. Even from our relationship with nature, where in the 1500s, the emergence of the scientific mind, in the early nascence of that, you know, talking about nature, whereas before nature had been something we'd been deeply embedded with and dependent on, and perhaps frightened of, you know, nature could do us in. Um, we were, you know, the harvests and the moons and the rhythms of nature. And then this emergence of the idea that nature was something that should be, and these were his words from Francis Bacon in the 1500s, that nature should be bound in service, wounded in her wanderings, put on a rack and tortured for her secrets. And that is the consciousness we're still with. You know, and nature isn't just the earth, it's... uh, it became a certain period, it became women's bodies and others in the body and it became um, the animal kingdom now. And many, many secrets were revealed and great advances have been made technologically, um, economically, um, in this, you know, look how comfortable that we are. This is what that gave us how we can extract and survive as humans. But, the, but it's based on a, on a really terrible a premise that perhaps we have to really have conscious of this domination of nature, this idea that we can control it and control everything, um, this idea that we can control and oppress others that are less important to us in the hierarchy of, of who is more valuable in, this, in these systems of oppression, what bell hooks calls uh, these systems of, of um, patriarchy. It's a system of who's, you know, someone at the top of the pinnacle and then everyone has a place underneath that. Um, or, you know, within which we have the, the racist hierarchies that operate of white supremacy that we're working with and seeing it raising its head again the imperialism and the empire building um, that has extracted so much over centuries upon which our capitalist wealth is based. So now turning to what um, Naomi Klein calls the um, disaster capitalism. So you know that actually the effects of global warming are advantageous for that level of capitalism. You can go in and pick off the pickings, you know, after a community's been devastated and build your condos and so on. So all of this we're we're looking at, and it's such a profound journey that we're in to look at these systems um, and, you know, to be in in response to them and how that mentality isn't just an external system and how it's in Culcated within ourselves, how how we think, how we feel, how we respond, how we assume things. You know, I, I you know just living in apartheid South Africa, even though I wasn't there um, when apartheid 
I was operating. I was, we, we went there at the fall of apartheid in 1994. Apartheid is Afrikaans word, which means to live apart. Um, so that was a very successful system, actually, because there's a tremendous amount of trauma and woundedness layered on top of what went before the colonization that, uh, that rolls on and impacts in so many ways. But uh, what, what, I, what I noticed at first when I went, it was a shock. I could, you know, I, I couldn't quite digest the because the, in the rural areas it was still going on, um, and I turning up as a white person, I automatically had a place of privilege. You know, even though I didn't want that, you know, that was the in the relationship deal of the whole system, and how I would sort of internally rail against it and try and negotiate the, the insanity of what I felt was like these communities living so intimately together and yet like there were these glass walls between us. Until one day and I walked into a supermarket and there was this old, old elder Zulu man and he was pulling these baskets out of a, getting a basket from a pile of baskets for his shopping and he pulled one out of the top just as I was walking past and it sort of came out and in that moment, because of the, I had been started to internalize unconsciously the conditioning of that system as the white madam, I assumed he'd pull that basket out for me. And I went to take it and I looked at him and he looked at me and I realized at that moment that I'd become part of the system. And the, the waves of guilt and embarrassment and were extreme and that was often part of what the payoff was that you know if you were on the um, on the side of the entitled you you know to to endure those systems you have to close down your sensitivity and your heart and become a very armored and if you're on the other side then in a way it's it's also very complex to deal with the fallout of such profound oppression and um, the destruction of any resourced lifestyles in a very deliberate way, you know, the struggle of that. But all of that, whichever sides that these systems place us in, it's a, a very great wound to the heart and a very great wound to the place where actually we are, we're in a deep unitive uh, field of relationship and consciousness together. So when we, we look at the journey of reclamation, it is a profound journey because what promotes those, those separations, we have to live in worlds of abstraction. We can't really live from the world of the heart because once we go to the heart, those separations start to break down. They don't make sense because we're here together as humans and I feel and you feel and you know, let's work together. Uh, let's look at these. Let's see how we can deconstruct, decolonize these systems. So to maintain them, there, there's a tremendous wound of being pulled out. There's a tremendous price that we've paid to buy into these systems, where we've 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 deadened. As I think uh, Aaron was talking about, the deadening of the heart is one of the prices we pay. The evisceration of the sensitivity that we have as humans our right to the sense of a deeper belonging together and a and deeper belonging to the earth and a deeper belonging together with the animal kingdom. If you go near an animal, they just look at us with fear. You know, 
I mean, if you've been close to an animal, a wild animal that doesn't have that fear, that you suddenly meet, Erin was mentioning the owl, and the enormous magic and great blessing of that, but that's rare. You know, and this is the karma of what I've gone, has gone before. I was reading um, this um, about the when the slave trade that went on for hundreds of years. You know, the enormous the enormous invisceration of sensitivity to promote and and maintain all of that. In one of the um, great authors who wrote the book Sacred Hunger, a novel that basically lays out the ground and. At one point, talking about in the conversation of the two main characters um, in the novel, the the slaver and his son, and he's inducting his son into the trade and talking about, well, we use ledgers, almanacs, balance sheets, graphs, and tables. These are the merchant's comforting methods rendered abstract and therefore dehumanizing um, the reality of the immense cruelty that really involved, this is not what he said, but just he said to his son, we use these almanacs and these maps and so on, um, methods of abstraction, balance sheets, numbers. You know, this is, we're not looking at humans, we're not really feeling, we're not really connecting with the enormous terror and fear and devastation that this wrought to the human heart and to nations and lands. So this rise of, you know, what we're in now, this rise of this deep separative consciousness is an abstraction, an abstraction. it's a victimization, it's the projection of the shadow, um, where the other, you know, the planet, the creatures, um, the insects, the fish, the animals, other peoples, even our own body, ourselves, there's no one that actually wins in that system. Even if you look at the guys right at the top of the pile, they're miserable as hell. You know, they've got it all and they're, they're absolutely filled with resentment and anger and vengeance. You know, there's no beauty, there's no joy, there's no poetry, there's no love. You know, so no one really wins in these systems. And yet in the midst of all of that, there's these, there's these old memories. We understand, we remember that there was a time and we feel it and we're working our way not, we can't go back, but we can remember and bring that forward when we were deeply embedded in, in the web of life. You know, we, we feel that there was a wound when we were abstracted from that, all of us, in one way or another. When we felt our, our, our spirituality wasn't a dogma or a belief system, wasn't mediated by a priest or a holy person, but was a direct participation in that web of life and in the cosmos, mediated more through meditative awareness, through intuition and visions and dreams and shamanic processes, that this is our birthright, this is our connection. And so as we start to, you know, replace and reclaim this abstraction with this journey back here into the heart, journey back into reclaiming our body, Reclaiming our feelings, reclaiming our, you know, from our need to consume, as Kitty Osara was saying, that matter, consuming matter, which is uh, from the Latin word mother, the loss of the mother, the loss of the earth, the loss of the nourishment, the loss of connection, and the replacement of that with this unbelievable, unstoppable consume, consuming 
of everything and how the more we consume, the, the more painful it is actually. The more it shows our, our, our hollowness that we have. And so when we start to make the journey back into the reclamation, into reclaiming and integrating the shadow, we have to really come into feeling. It's like thawing out from that frozenness and from those abstractions. And when we first feel what's been lost and what's been put, as one of our teachers, Ajahn Sumedha, would say, the orphans of consciousness that we throw in the dungeons and we put the lid down. And then in a meditation, we open, that lid starts to open and those orphans come up to be met. They want to be heard. And we go, oh no, something's going really wrong. You know, I'm not peaceful anymore. And, you know, my samadhi's not working. I just apply more will and get... <laughs> You know, that's, it's actually a different movement. We're required at that moment to make a different kind of movement than we've been used to. It's not the heroic, individuated leap into the light, away from, but as Ajahn Chah would say, it's, you know, you know, if you've got to be anything, be an earthworm, because they're useful. They go down and irrigate the soil, you know. You know, be a Buddha if you, if you want to be, but, you know... <laughs> Maybe be an earthworm first. Go through the root of the earthworm. You know, go down through the soil. This is a poem. When you fail, don't be so quick to dust yourself off with pep talks meant to get you to rise up triumphantly and exclaim, I am not giving up. Don't be triumphant. Instead, give up. Yes, that's right, give up. Not forever, but just for now, just for a moment, at least just give up. Give it all up. You will be tempted to comfort yourself with spiritual concepts meant to assure you this is all for the best. This is all part of a grand plan to cleanse you, purify you, make you triumphant, glorious, heroic. No, don't do this. Don't be a hero. But also do not be devoured by shame and by self-hatred. This is the same game played backwards. No. Just give up, just for a moment. Just lay low, low to the ground. Your false self shattered. Breathe the grass. Taste the dew. Inhale the soil. You failed. You broke. Life broke. Kiss the brokenness. And receive your true self that has been hidden in the spaces in between. Maya Luna. So we don't have to have it all worked out. We can allow for the, the failing. We can allow for the brokenness. We can allow for the groundlessness we can allow for the hopelessness, for the despair. You know, we can uh, relinquish. I mean, actually, this is an important journey that we don't have to resolve everything, fix it, make it right. We're entering the deep mystery of the shadow, of the journey into the dark, the journey where we don't see our way that clearly. It's not clear in... You know, what is the technique now? What is, in, you know, those methods in Buddhism? What is the structure that I'm doing now? Give me the lists. 
This is a different kind of journey. It's supported by those lists. It's supported by mindfulness. This is the depth feminine, which is into the mess. Into kissing the mess, being with the mess. That bleeds. She bleeds. She gives birth. She takes life. You know, it's, 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 it's where we understand, where we bow our heads and know that we were never in control. <laughs> we had the illusion of it for a while. But, you know, she's got the ace card. You think uh, Mother Nature, you know, hasn't got the ace card? She's here for 4.5 odd billion years. We're here like that. She's the deep intelligence. Yeah, so this human arrogance, we're, we've become, we've, you know, this is when, again, the, the grandmother, the Khoisan, she said, you know, you guys, you know, we're on track. We were always on track. You guys, you don't even know you there's a track. You're so off track. <laughs> no. She also said, when we go, you know, we are just, how did she put that? We are going first to show the way. You know, it's not a set deal. This is a privilege to be here with Mother Nature. We haven't, uh, we can't, uh, we've, we've uh, abused that privilege and you know, all of us have colluded and been beneficiaries of that and it's not a place to, it's like that moment when I took that basket from the elder Zulu man and I could have died on the spot and I crawled around the supermarket and you know, it didn't really, I mean, it's like, what? It was, so, so what, you know? You know, just feel what you feel. Feel allow ourselves to lay our feet in honesty at how we've been conditioned. And so we feel it and then we lay ourselves even deeper into the mystery of where we don't know, where we don't have it all sorted, where we are opening. This is what uh, the depth of Kuan Yin means. Is that the place where we go, I don't know how to fix this. I open myself to this intelligence, to this depth, to this, with great humility, with great sense of returning everything back into that bow. Where I can, perhaps like that moment in the monastery where I can know everything can be shattered, everything is being shattered, but even when I feel into what's happening and I've, I've been so reactive as you all have been, I am sure, about what's been going on in this country, in my home country, in South Africa, the three countries that I'm deeply wedded to across the planet, and even more profoundly reactive in terms of what's been happening to our earth. And we know, you know, our eyes are now wide open of where we stand and what's happening. You know, that... Uh, that even within all of that and the shattering of that and the pain of it and the despair and the rage and the, the, the sense of disbelief, I know, that it shouldn't be like this. You know, I remember Ajahn Chah going to a disciple that was suffering a lot in, in hospital in Bangkok going, the disciple going, it shouldn't be like this, shouldn't be like this, shouldn't be like this. And Ajahn Chah leaned over and said, if it shouldn't be like this, it wouldn't be like this. This is how it is. 
And so this deep, if we're doing anything in this practice, we're deeply being with it all. But in the midst of that, I, can, I feel this heart. I do. I feel there's a strength. There's, a, there's still a connection. And there's, there's a palpability of that heart. And I feel that that heart, when I'm not caught up in, you know, ranting on Facebook, <laughs> which I do too much, I feel the love. I do. I feel the mercy. I feel it for all of all the whole of it. And so this is, you know, there's this um, beautiful thing I saw today actually when I was sort of, sort of, kind of out there um, scoping around for some inspiration for tonight's talk. <laughs> and I saw this on the internet, the great purveyor of all things. <laughs> Sophie Scrawl, November the 3rd, which is today, 1943, on her way to being executed by the Nazis for leading a student resistance movement. She said, how can we expect righteousness to prevail if we are not willing to give oneself up to a righteous cause? Such a fine day, and I have to go. But what does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? She was 21 years old. So we have a curriculum not quite perhaps what we thought was going to be our curriculum. Um, and it's downloaded and we all are aware, I think, you know, of what that is and where we are. And we're getting awakened at speed. Um, and, you know, this practice is a practice that supports our way of being here. It's not a practice to bypass this curriculum, to try and just catapult ourselves away and to leave the, everyone else, you know, to flounder, it's actually a moment to really shore up our commitment to this heart and to the quality of presence and deep listening that we are inducted into as we bow into this deeper awareness of the jitta of the heart. When we come to the, the Heart Sutra, which we chanted tonight, when Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin, is giving this teaching, Avalokiteshvara, the one that regards and contemplates the sounds of the world. This is another way of talking about vipassana or insight. We're seeing and being with the phenomena of all things, but we're seeing through the eyes of Avalokiteshvara, not just to objectify everything, that's one way we can look, and that's a very good way. It helps to give us some space. It helps to give us a foot and a ground in mindful awareness. But from that ground of mindful awareness to return and to listen where all things are, the, are intimate to each other, where there's the awakening is, is where all things are intimate to us, the shadow and the light. You know, all of the political players are part of this one Awareness within which all are resident, all beings are resident in this one awareness. 
And so this heart can meet that. And looking through this discernment, Avalokiteshvara is saying to Shariputra, to this brilliant mind that understands all of the teachings and has it really capped and is brilliantly and profoundly wise, but is saying, look again, look more deeply. Don't just settle even for your awakening, even for Nibbana. Just keep going deeper until you dissolve the walls of the mind, until you understand that there's nothing to attain. There's nothing to get. There's no superhero to leap into the light. It's already here. This heart's already been with you all along. You know, just turn to it and course the depths of reality through this. Avalokiteshvara is coursing the depths within the great unbounded, empty fullness of the heart. It's both empty in that there's, it's not defined by any construct and yet it is from the great emptiness the manifested emerges. And that manifested realm is contemplated with compassion. That's whatever Keteshvara is about. Not the compassion I'm being nice to you, but the compassion this is also part of who we are what we are as a point of consciousness where the universe is awakening to itself. So as we come into, as it said, Avalokiteshvara, when Avalokiteshvara was practicing as a bodhisattva, at a certain point, his, her head shattered into a million pieces because it was so hard to turn around human beings. And in a great moment of despair, Avalokiteshvara cried to his guru, cried out to Amitabha, which represents the limitless life, limitless light of reality of consciousness, pure consciousness, a, a profound seat in conscious awareness from which all things emerge into which all things dissolve, cried out in great despair, like we do, how can we do this? They're so ignorant, <laughs> so greedy, so committed to destruction. And Amitabha Buddha came down from wherever Amitabha Buddha hangs out, and said, well, what were you thinking making such a big vow, you know? Yeah, it was a bit ambitious of you, wasn't it? <laughs> well, that's what we do as humans. We do have this wonderful, beautiful side. I mean, that's why the bodhicitta and we can make these great vows. I'll be here into the last blade of grass. Uh, oh, did I really say that? <laughs> and so Avalokiteshvara was put back together by Amitabha, his guru, her guru, little by little, and reshaped and given 11 amazing heads and a thousand hands and eyes. And so this great being had this huge capacity, and in her hands and eyes, she had all these different response bodies. So she could tie up demons with lassoes. She could cut through bullshit with an axe. <laughs> she could get her sword of wisdom and just take those fuckers out. <laughs> yeah. She could take a pile of books and educate. She could take her vase of sweet dew and just soothe and calm, merciful compassion. 
She could take a dart of an arrow and pierce the hearts of living beings. This is Avalokiteshvara. She can appear in any form she likes. Our Avalokiteshvara was our dog. I tell you, without our dog Jack, Jack Numzan Weinberg, <laughs> the great, we would have never have survived in South Africa. It was so difficult <laughs> a task, you know, because it is just how it was, how it is, how, how it landed for us. And how many every day I'm like, I'm out of here. And how Jack would come up, bounding up the hill, call his name, Jack, where are you? He'd gone off chasing after baboons. Like, oh, he's chasing after baboons. You know, the number of ongoing fights between dogs and baboons. Jack, come here. And he'd only go even crazier, crazier. And then he'd come bounding back, looking so happy, so happy. I got rid of those baboons, you know, like so. Oh, you nearly got killed in the process, but okay. And then he'd just like, you know, you'd put his food down, and he'd just go, you know, in a second. And like, happy, where's there's more? You know, but his happiness was just so beautiful. You know, we'd be worried and heavy and these big issues and problems and, and just this happy being. And all the retreatants loved him. And in the end, Jack, who was supposed to be an outside dog in his doghouse, landed having about seven different ho- homes that he would... He had a, a mat in the kitchen. He had a mat, first of all, in our lounge, and then it moved into our bedroom. And then he had a mat in the dining room where the retreatants who weren't supposed to give him toast and marmite would feed him little bits of toast and marmite, which was his favorite. And then in the end, he had a mat in the shrine room. And whenever he didn't like the Dharma talk, he would get up and he had this neck, this, you know, he'd have to put, because he would, he'd also get lost and kidnapped. He had all these, I, I wrote all these, he had a, a banker in, the, in England sponsoring him in the end and I would write stories for this person's daughter so I had all these stories about Jack and kidnapped Jack sort of taking on the snakes Jack chasing baboons Jack frightened of lightning and thunder but anyway he would get up in the Dharma talk and he'd just walk straight past one of us and then he'd just shake his head and and go to the door and like okay so that wasn't so cool that talk but if he liked, he, well, the thing he liked the most was the Kuan Yin chant. So when the Kuan Yin, when we chant, he'd just throw himself on his back and his little legs would go. <laughs> so we always thought that Jack was our Kuan Yin and we always thought that, uh, you know, that he had come to us to, to keep us on that mountain and um, you know, keep that little thing alive, that little center that sort of was threatened in so many millions of ways of being swept away you know, just to hold that little place and keep that little place, that little light alive. And in a way, that's what we're doing. We're keeping alive our hearts, our light. And we're bringing that light to illuminate the shadows, not to project them, not to suppress them, not to get lost in them, not to feel terribly guilty and bad about them anymore. You know, we're all, we all, who knows, the karma of all of this. It's so thick, you know, Buddhists don't even bother to try and figure it out. What we know, this is how things have come to be. And this, as Ajahn Chah said, this is, in this moment, the place we bring our mindful practice. And that's what we do. And then as we do that, this term that uh, Aaron used, Yoni Somani Sakara, everything comes back into the womb of awareness to be contemplated. And in that womb, awareness is the root into the living dharma. It's intelligent, it's profound, it's, it 
undying, immovable. And it's emerging within this heart. It's our true guru, our true guidance, unshakable. It will be here even if the world systems collapse. That heart is not going anywhere. You know, whatever's going down, whatever we're going to be facing, and we are going to be facing an increase in intensity and challenge, and, you know, that's coming. But we know where to take refuge. We know how to not go into those places of abstraction and denial and fear. We will go there, but we can return, return, return. And this is where we place our trust. This is where we plug into the deeper reality that's actually got the ace card. (laughs) And we are here, you know, it's grace. We don't, nothing owes us anything, really. How lucky to be here at this time, that we have opportunity to add our little light to the lights of other beings and to hold it all in compassion until that moment when our last breath comes and we make the transitions Until that moment, we have life to live. We have joy to connect with. We have beauty to share. We have gifts to offer. We have resources to give away. We have discernment to undo these systems that have held human consciousness in fear and oppression so we can free each other, free the human consciousness so we can be fully here in our full capacity to respond as completely as we can. These words to finish with again from the Khoisan, from Daikwan. The wind does thus when we die. Our own wind blows, for we, who are human beings, make clouds when we die. Therefore, The wind does thus when we die. The wind makes dust because it intends to blow, taking away our footprints with which we had walked about while we we still had nothing the matter with us. And our footprints, which the wind intends to blow away, would otherwise still lie plainly visible. For it would seem as if we still lived. So therefore... The wind intends to blow, taking away our footprints. So said Dai Guan.
So we have some time to walk, if we wish, into the night for a while, (laughs) to be with the stars and the cloak of the evening, the darkness, to walk peacefully. If you need to rest, please do. And the final sitting at uh, nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.